So as, as something, I, I, I'm 31 years old, so in my short life, I have learned a few things. I've, and one of the things I've learned is I haven't learned anything, that I still have so much to learn. But one of the things that I realized that is true about men is that we do things that, you know, either we don't realize that we do them or we do them because we are very uh, protective of our appearance, of what people think about us, especially when it comes to like our family, our friends, uh, you know, our co-workers. Uh, we want to keep an appearance. We want to keep uh, the, a, a particular look. And so we do things whether we realize them or no. We do things that whether they make sense or no. So think about this for a second. You know, if you, if you have gone on a hike, and I don't know why this is the case, but I know this to be true, is that when you go on a hike or, you go on a, or you're going up a hill and you're walking around or you're doing this with your family or your close friend, why is it that when it starts to get harder, you make it a purpose to start breathing quiet? Like you start like lowering the, the amount of the level of how you breathe. Like you don't want people to hear you breathing because you feel that if they hear you breathing, they're going to think that you're dying. Well, you are. You are dying, but you still want to hide that. So you, 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 you start to breathe lower and quieter. I know this for a fact because I've been around Bruce when we've been on a hike, and that's what he does. He like suddenly you see it like he's like... Like pretending to go lower, you know? And so we do things like that. We don't know why, but we, we do it because it's one of those things. But then there's this other thing. Like when you are driving, explain this to me. I don't know the logic, but when you're driving and you are getting to the parking lot and you're looking for your park to, parking space, why is it that we felt the urge to lower the music to find the right spot? Why is it? Like, if we tell ourselves, like, if I lower the music, I'll be able to see the right spot. Like, where's the logic behind that? But we do it. And, and so there are things that as men, you know, that we constantly do that make no sense. Uh, other times we do this because we care about appearance. One of my favorite shows is called uh, Team Seal. Anybody here watches it? Team Seal, CBS? Okay. It's a, I, I really like it, partially because I wanted to be a Navy SEAL. Uh, obviously, I didn't make it. Uh, so as you can tell, <laughs> if I try, I couldn't make it. But uh, nonetheless, it's, it's a pretty cool show, I think. But in the story, in the show, the main character, and I'm not going to spoil it to you if you haven't watched it, but the main character goes through many traumatic events. He goes through many uh, experiences, many challenges. And so the way that he will deal with those things, if he had a life motto, if he was something that he was known for, it was a phrase that he would constantly use, which is ignore and override. Everything that he and dealt with everything that he had experienced, everything that he came, came face to face, he will say he would deal with this by saying ignore and override. And so obviously it's like a fictional show, like it's based in, 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 in fiction. But nonetheless, there's so much true in those two words into how men, how you and I deal with something like suffering. For whatever reason, as men, we don't like to acknowledge our suffering. We don't like to talk about our heart struggles or our hardships. We don't like to uh, discuss them with other men. We don't like to be vulnerable. We don't like people to see us crying. We don't like uh, people to, to feel like we don't know what we're doing. And so when it comes to those hard seasons of life, we really use those two words. We say ignore and override. By definition, ignore, we mean this, to refuse to take notice of 
or to acknowledge something. So, you know, if you are in a difficult situation, if, if your marriage is not working the way that it's supposed to be working, it is hard for us to acknowledge that. It's hard for us to say, yeah, maybe we do need to see counsel with somebody. Yes, maybe we should bring someone in and, and let them kind of like give us some advice on what our, our relationship has been. We don't want to do that. Instead, we want to ignore it. We want to tell ourselves, yeah, that's not really the case. We're not really struggling. Yeah, my boss is not really doing that to me or like I'm not really struggling with this thing or I'm not really caught up in this awful situation and we try to ignore it. But we don't stop with that. We overwrite, which by definition, it means to use one's authority or power to reject or to interrupt an action and change its course. In other words, we ignore things and immediately we wanted to distract ourselves. We want to move into a different di direction. We want to not embrace the suffering that is in front of us. And so when you think about trials and hardships and, and, and the things that we all endure, the reality is, this is the reality. Here's where we all have a common play, uh, place to be. We live in a broken world, a world that is filled with sin where sin runs rampant. And sin is in the life of every single one of individual. And so because that is the reality of the world that we live in, we live in it is just a matter of a time for us to encounter trials, suffering, hardships. But then you add the extra uh, caveat to, the, to, to this idea of suffering, that there are times that you and I, we rebel against God that we sin, that we deliberately choose to do what opposes God. And because of that, we have to deal with consequences. And these consequences often come in the form of hardship, struggles, difficulties. And so our response to those things, if we're honest, if you're honest, if I'm honest, more than we would like to admit is that ignore and override. I think, of my, I think many times in my life that I have made poor decisions or that I'm finding myself, you know, I have lost a loved one, lost my, my grandparents. I've, I was dealing with the loss. Uh, we, we thought we were losing one of, my, um, one of my girls. And in those moments, instead of acknowledging those things, I thought to myself, the best way to endure this, the best way to move off from this stuff is to ignore it, not acknowledge it. If I do not acknowledge my pain, if I not acknowledge my hardship, if I not acknowledge this stuff, then maybe it's not real. Maybe it's not going to eat me up. Maybe it's not going to prevent me from doing what I'm supposed to do. I need to be tough. I need to act tough. I need to act like I know what's going on. I need to uh, figure things out. And so when we act in this way, we realize that we, are, we have misinterpreted and we, or we have lost what suffering is about. And so tonight we're talking about suffering. We're going to be talking about how do we, we, we are patient or how we are steadfast through suffering, which is how James is going to be ending his letter. Uh, you've been doing a study in the book of James, and, and, I, and I love this because I don't know if you caught it, but in the very beginning of the book of James, uh, James starts his letter by talking about suffering. And it's not coincidence that as he's getting ready to end the letter, he's going to end it in suffering. And if you know the context of the letter, it's, it's, it's a letter that was written to believers that were spread out, that were dealing in somewhat different kinds of sufferings. And so you see that in a way, this is something that not necessarily central on the letter, but something that is 
prevalent in the letter that James wrote to the believers. And this letter that is considered to be a modern proverb to, to us or the New Testament version of the book of Proverbs is something that we should definitely take attention. But for us to under, understand the context of, you know, the context of suffering, we have to read or acknowledge what James is going to do here in chapter 5, verse 1. Because he's going to start with a warning to the rich. And as you read James 5, it kind of seems like, where are you going with this? Like, why are you now throwing a jab at the rich people? Like, why are you getting after the people that have an, an F-150? Uh, that they can go to McDonald's and get more than a, ba- you know, I almost said a bacon cheese burger, but that's not, they don't have a bacon cheese burger. What do they have at McDonald's? Make a mac and cheese or something. I don't know. But, like, you, like, why is it that out of nowhere, as he's concluding his letter, why is it now turning his attention to the rich people? And you're going to find out that what he's doing with the rich individuals is going to be essential for, for us to understand what he's going to address when it comes to suffering. So we're going to be in James chapter 5, verse 1, as he's going to start giving a warning to the, to the rich. It says this in verse 1. Come now, you rich, weep and hold and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rooted and your garments are mothening. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last day. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mow your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. So when you read this, it's kind of like a very, like, we read it quick and maybe it didn't, I didn't do justice to what he's saying here. But if you take the time and you examine, examine the language that James is using, it's pretty tough. It's, it's, it's very alarming. Like he's being very direct and very um, aggressive in how he's warning the rich as he's writing this letter. And he, here's how he's starting. Verse 1, he says this, come now you rich, weep and howl for the mysteries that are coming upon you. And so from the, first, from the giggle, the first warning that he has is this, is that misery is coming to the person who puts their trust in their, in their possessions. So when you think about the rich, people, the rich Christians that were in this, at this time in James, they were gathering all of these possessions, all of this wealth, and they were finding their confidence in their wealth. They felt that the fact that they had money, the fact that they had possession, they were set for life. They were happy. They felt that they had everything that they needed. And the warning from the gaggle that James is telling them is, hey, you may have all the wealth in the world. You may have everything that you desire. But know that soon you're going to weep and howl because misery is coming your way. And as I read this, I immediately thought of the, of the parable of Jesus when he's talking about the rich fool. This individual that built all of this uh, wealth and he felt like he didn't have enough room to store it all. So he built another building so that he could store all of his wealth. And soon, once he did all of those things, he said to himself, okay, now I have time to drink and to be merry, to be happy. I can, now I can enjoy everything that I have done. And right there, we're told that, it's, that Jesus says, you fool, 
the things that you have worked for, your life is coming to, your life is coming to an end now, and the things that you have worked for are going to be given to someone else. And the reality about possessions and how when we base our life, it's a warning, when you and I base our life on acquiring possessions, and that is our confidence, and that is where we base our worth, our value, our purpose, sooner or later we're going to be heading in a direction where we're going to be weeping and howling full of misery. So that's the warning he starts. He starts, like I said, he starts very, in a way, kind of harsh in how he deals with it. And then in verse 2, verse 3, he says this. Your riches have rooted and your garments are moten, however you pronounce that. Help me out later on. Your coal and silver have corroded and the corrosion will be evidence against you and you will eat your flesh like fire. And so you see here how greed will corrupt and consume like fire. And like the imagery that he's using here. Think about like the most precious wealth, gold and silver. That throughout history, even to this day, there's like, they're like, there's so much value in those things. And yet he's saying here that even those things, eventually they corrupt, they, they, get, they get dirty, they lose their worth, they lose their value. If you don't keep up with it, if you don't restore them, they're not going to be what they once were. And he's saying here, when you devote your life to greed, when you're greed, when you base your life on accomplishing and collecting more things and more things, more things, eventually you're just leading yourself to a place where greed will consume you like fire. Now, I live in Coventry, so, and if you're a firefighter here, uh, don't, don't, you know, go, don't complain to Butch or Bruce. You may complain to, complain to Mike. Mike will, Mike will understand. Uh, but, you know, in Coventry, we, somehow we can get, our, we can get a, a, away with this. And when I say Mike, Mike Duma, because he doesn't go here. Uh, but I, I'm not the most um, handy person. So the way I do fire is that I throw gasoline. Yeah, I know, I know. And, and, and now that I have kids, I don't do it anymore. I learn, I learn. But nonetheless, I would throw gasoline and then I would one of this and then run away. Uh, and so it worked out so far, as you can tell. But soon maybe I would be like, hey, Joku. But nonetheless, uh, you, you have this happening here where you see how the fire just explodes. And immediately, for the most part, consumes whatever you have laid out there. If it's not just random wood, if it's not something that is solid, if it's like paper or leaf or something, it will just immediately consume it. That's the imagery that he's using here when it comes to greed. That greed, that when you devote your life to greed, is eventually it will consume your flesh like fire. That's a big warning. And yet, especially in our culture, especially as men, we are never satisfied or we struggle being satisfied and how we can easily devote ourselves to acquiring more things and more things and more things. So the warning for the rich since ending his letter is like, hey, understand that greed will consume you like fire. The third, the third warning he has for them is in verse 4. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mow your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the, of, the, of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. 
So this is where we get to really see the context of the letter. Because these were this Christians were not just simply Christians that were just acquiring wealth. But these were Christians that were rich because they were abusing both power and authority. They had people working under them. They have employees and they were being uh, tricky in how they, they, they dealt with those things. In the letter, the, word, the, the thing that James is saying to them is, say, hey, you have been corrupted. You have been taking advantage of them. You have fraud them. You have taken back the money from individuals that are working in your field. And so the warning that he has here is that you might think that you have gotten away with your abuse and trickery, but God hears the cries of the oppressed and he will judge accordingly. I mean, when he says here in that letter, in that warning, he said, hey, those people that labor your field, that you should defraud them and you took their money, their cries have not gone into empty ears. They have landed into the ears of the Lord of hosts. Now, James is being intentional and in using that description of God. He could have simply said God, but he chose to, to, he chose to write the Lord of hosts, which is a term or, or a terminology that was used to refer to the omnipresence of God. That is something that was used to refer that, that God was in every single place. So the idea is, is that even us as employers, people that have people working under them, for us to recognize that even if we think we are getting away with things, at the end of the day, those, those abuses, those trickery that we're doing, is, are, they're not going into empty ear. Because the omnipresent God, the God that is in those moments, even when we're defrauding others, he sees us. And those offenses, those abuses that do not go into empty ears will be the ones that we're going to have to give account to one day. So he's warning the rich individuals. It's a big warning how we treat those that work underneath us. If you're here today and you have employees, understand that how you handle yourself for them, you're going to have to give account one day. And if you're not fair in how you deal with them, know that one day you're going to stand before God and have to give account to how that takes place. And then the last warning, and I think this is the most, the saddest one, is that in an attempt to obtain more wealth, they have destroyed the life of the innocent. In verse 6, you says, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. That's how greed works. That's how this world navigates. It's that we as men can get so driven, so committed, so passionate about being successful, about acquiring possessions, about making a name for ourselves, that sometimes we don't have regards, whoever, we don't have regards of who we can walk on so long as we obtain what we want to obtain. And what we don't realize is that if we're not careful, we may acquire possession, we may acquire wealth and success, but we may do that at the expense of the innocent. And, I'll, and, and it's heartbreaking when you read it because he says here, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. And in the context, this is not just, an, it was not like a, like a simple, like, parable or a simple, uh, like, a, a, he's not pointing a picture. No, no, no. These were individuals that because of their abuse, they were actually dying 
being murdered because they didn't even have ways to survive, ways to deal. Because the Christians that were rich were just getting richer and richer and richer without regard of those that were being oppressed. To the point that he ends with this statement, he does not resist you. That they have been abused so much so that they just gave up, that they just took it. They've just been beat up and take it. So that's the context. That's, what, that's how he starts. As he's about to transition into suffering. That's the context because he starts talking with the rich. And if you're here today and, you know, you've been blessed by, you know, by your finances or you've been blessed by a position, the hope is, is that you will understand this. It's that the warning, if we were to summarize it, the warning is, is that we will treat those that were entrusted to us fairly, not driven by greed, but by our desire to honor God who has already given us more than we deserve. If you're here today and God has blessed you in your life, whether with success or possessions, it's not, there's not, we're, we're not, I'm not coming here and kind of like dogging on you or, or, or trying to uh, make you feel guilty of how God has blessed you. No, no, praise God that you've been blessed in those ways. Praise God that you have those things at your disposal. It's nothing wrong with money. It's nothing wrong with those possessions. Now hear me out. It's when greed is our motivator, when greed is what drives us, that's the problem. And so the hope is, and the warning is, is that we will treat those entrusted to us fairly. That we will deal with those around us fairly. Even, maybe you're here today and you're like, I don't have any working with you. Even as, as you're going to a restaurant and, and at that restaurant you have a waiter that is acting terrible. Nonetheless, as a Christian, as someone who calls himself a follower of Jesus, that we would deal with others fairly, driven not by greed, but by our desire to honor God. And here's why we want to honor God. Because we recognize that we have been given way more than we deserve. Do you recognize that? Do I recognize that? I mean, think about it. we all sinners. We have rebelled against God. We, we chose to oppose God. And in his loving and gracious mercy, he provided a way for us to have a relationship with God. And that was enough. What Jesus did on the cross for us and how he rose from the dead, that is enough. Way more than we deserve. But God who gives abundantly did not end there. And he has given us way more than we deserve. And we're going to get into Thanksgiving pretty soon. And the tradition is, is that you start looking at your life and you start thinking about things that you're thankful for. The hope is, is that you don't wait and I don't wait for Thanksgiving to do that. But that we recognize even what we have now, that where you feel like you may have not have enough. Even those things that you feel like it's not enough is way more than we deserve. And, and it means how much good God has been to you and me. And so the idea, the warning is that, is that, hey, treat those entrusted to us fairly, driven out by greed, but by our desire to honor God who has already given us more than we deserve. And in that context, he goes from the rich to those that have been oppressed, have been suffering. So the target audience right now are those individuals that have been abused by the rich, are those individuals that have been dealing with, that have been taken advantage of. Those individuals that were finding themselves in a very difficult situation. Now, the caveat that I want to throw in here is that although that is the context where we're going to be discussing, we can apply it to us today 
by way of uh, like second reference, like by way of like in, of inter- interpretation, reading the Bible, we can apply that to us to our context. And so when we think about suffering, when we think about trials, when we think about hardships, when we think about those instances in life where we're dealing with things that maybe we're not looking forward, things that, again, we tend to ignore and override, we have to, again, recognize and understand what is the purpose behind those things. And for that, we have to go back to the very beginning of the letter, because this is how James starts the letter. In James chapter 1, verse 2 and 4, he says this, count it all joy, my brothers. He could have been done there. The fact that he continued to elaborate is awesome. But he could have been done there. He simply said, hey, count it all joy, good or bad, uh, whether we like it or not, whether we appreciate it or not. We are to count it all joy, my brothers, especially when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing, the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. That's how he starts the letter. And it sounds very nice. It sounds very like, okay, that's pretty cool. Like, uh, it's easy for you to say than to do. But understand what is that he's trying to get at. If we were to word it differently, we could put it, we could put it this way, that we, are to, we must joyfully view our trials and sufferings as a means to be, or as a means for us to be more like Christ, more like Jesus. That as we are to, it says, it says here that, if, that so that Stephanus will have his full effect and that you may be perfect and complete where you will lack nothing, which that it will only be possible when we become more like Christ. Then if we were to reward this, if we were to word this differently, we will word it as this, is that we are to be joyfully we should joyfully view our trials and sufferings, understanding that these are things that God utilized to make us more like Christ. Now, if you and I are ignoring and overriding those difficult times in life, if we're not acknowledging them, if we're not embracing them, if, we're not nav- if we don't navigate through those hardships, then we're not going to be able to become more like Christ. And obviously it sounds good for someone that is standing up here that may not be dealing with the hurt and the pain that you're dealing with. But know that this is not coming from me, Eric Gill. This is coming from God himself. And what he wants us to recognize is that even in those hard moments, those hardships, those things that make no sense, that even those things that are terrible, kind of like with Joseph, that what the evil meant for bad, that this gracious God that loves you and me so much so that he can use those terrible instances to, for, their, for our good, how he can turn ashes into beauty. That is what we see in here. That's the value of trials. And so he's going to proceed. He's going to say this in chapter 7. He, and we'll read in, in verse 5, chapter 7. He says, be patient, which this word patient means long pause, angle. Uh, to take to take a long breath, it says, it's, "Be patient, therefore, brothers." Again, keeping context, those poor Christians that were being abused, some that even may have died because of how the rich were stealing. James turns their attention and says, "Be patient, therefore, brothers, unto the coming of the Lord. 
See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the, of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your, ear, your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. So here's, you know, understanding that we are to look at our trials with joy because these are things that God to utilize for our blessing, for us to become more like Christ. Here's some other things, that, another way to put all that we just read. We can summarize all that we were read by making this statement that the key to steadfastness in suffering, here's how we are patient, here's how we endure suffering, is that we, uh, our, more, our minds and our heart is set on this, to be more like Christ. When you are dealing with hardships, with struggles, with, with whatever it is, you name it. That in those moments, your heart and your mind is not set on the situation itself. But that you're looking at it through the scopes. It's like this is something that God is going to use to make me more like him. Let me say this. I feel like as I was preparing about this, this is probably one of the toughest passages, to, not, not passage, but one of the toughest topics to teach. Because it's not something that is engaging, fun, and entertaining, or not, not that message is to be that. But it's not something that, like, it's not, you're not going to live here necessarily like, man, like, I love it. What do you talk about? Suffering. Like, it's, it's, it's tough to talk about hurt and pain. Because the reality is, whether you may have admitted or not, there may be some of you here tonight that you're dealing with something that, no, that you feel like maybe no one else understands. You may be facing something that you feel like you may be alone in this. You may be here tonight and you may feel like this, that, like, that, that, that whatever we're talking about here is not going to resonate with what you're dealing in your life. It's not fun to talk about it. I so wish Bush, or Bruce would have had me talk about, you know, something else in the letter of James. But this is what we ended up doing. So understand that I'm not trying to hear... I'm not trying to minimize your pain, your struggles, your, your hurt. And if you're not dealing with any of those things, praise God for that. But know that there are many people closer than you think that are dealing with this stuff. So at a minimum, this is something that you could hopefully utilize to bring encouragement and love to them. So the key to Stefan is his suffering in suffering is a mind and a heart set on the end goal to be more like Christ. He said that word patient. And when you think about patient, think about of an athlete. Obviously, don't look at me. I'm not an athlete. But think of an athlete. Unless I'm playing basketball against Lawrence, then I am an athlete compared to him. Uh, but I think of an athlete like an Olympic runner that they uh, start the race. Whether they're hurt, whether they're struggling, they're running that race because they have the goal in mind. And the goal is to make it to, to, the, to the, the, the finish line. For us as Christian, our goal is to be more like Christ. And so when we are enduring challenges and trials and difficulties, we have to keep our eyes and our, our mind and our heart in the end zone, in the end goal. 
which is to be more like Christ. For, so we will say it this way, for the believer, the goal is to be more like Christ. And so, f- yes, we understand that, but we also have to understand that that would only happen fully when Jesus returns. So what does this mean? That from the moment that you believe to the moment that Jesus comes back, everything that you endure, everything that you face, good or bad, is to point you, is to make you be more like Christ, more like Jesus. But that will not be perfected, perfected to the day that Jesus returned. And as we read in these passages, James makes it two, two times, he makes a reference of the imminent return of Jesus. Where he says to them, hey, the, the, the Lord will return. And then he uses the, the picture of the judges. It's like, hey, the judge is standing at the door. And any moment he comes in. And so he wants them to understand that in any moment, Jesus can, can come back. Or Jesus will come back. And so for us, as we live in this working world, in this life, to recognize that the goal, the end goal is to be more like Jesus. But we will not fully be like Jesus till he returns and take us home. And so for us to look our challenges, our trials, our circumstances through those lens. All right, so how do we, based on what we read, how do we in face endure challenges or suffering? So he starts with this in verse 7. He says this, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth. Be impatient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. So number one, be as a farmer who waits for his precious fruits. So tri- trials, hardships, difficult, difficult times, sufferings, they're not fun. But how do we endure on those things faithfully? How do we navigate those water in a way that we are doing it in a way that brings honor to God? Because another way that we could name this, this, this message is to talk about how to suffer well. So how do we suffer well? Well, number one, with patience. So the image that he used here is of a farmer who waits for his precious fruits. That even as rain comes, even if the weather is not the most ideal, he stills out there waiting for the moment that those fruits are ready to be uh, cropped or to be taken out of the ground. Now, I'm not a farmer. I'm, uh, I'm, uh, the only thing I ever, uh, I guess, planted was when as a kid, you put on a cider cup form, you put on like a, a bean and then the, a flower comes out. That's as much as, a, something as, a, as much as I have planted. But I do come from a country where, where plantation and, and, and agriculture is massive. And so I did come across individuals that that's what they all they did for their life. And even in my countries, you're driving, you see it. And, you know, if you think about Dominican Republic, you have, it's, it's, it's in, the, in the very center of, a, of, of uh, where hurricanes tend to, to come by. And so you have the threat of hurricanes, of wind, of rain. It's a tropical weather, so you don't know if it's going to rain or if it's going to be fully sunny. Sometimes it's both at the same time. So you, can, you cannot bet on weather. You cannot bet on those things. And so for a farmer, it is the most difficult situation for them to, to work in a scenario like that where it's unpredictable. And yet you see them all the time. They go joyfully to the field. They're excited to go work on the field despite of the weather, despite of the hardship, because they know that eventually they're going to get a fruit. They're eventually they're going to be able to get what they need to be able to survive and to provide for their family. If we were to look at our trials in that way, how much more patience we will be. If we don't look at our trials and our hardships and our struggle as a handicap of who we are, of how we are meant to be or of our stand. 
if we not look at a trial as something as an excuse to ignore and override, but that we will look at our trials as being what it is, an opportunity to become more like Jesus. And we will know that that's the end goal. Think about how much, what, how much better we will endure suffering, trials, and hardship when that is how we view them. That these are ways that God will make us more like him. It's tough. It's not easy. It's not the best thing to talk about. And yet, how essential for us as believers to recognize that we are to be patient in those moments that may, may not make sense. That we are to be patient in those moments that may bring so much hurt and pain. That we are to be patient in those moments where we will like to shame, to change them. But how we will recognize that in those moments that is when Jesus will make us more like him. Number two, he will say in verse 8 and 9, you also be patient. Again, he uses a word. Establish to hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. He reminds them, hey, be patient because Jesus is coming back. The day is coming back where you will be perfect, where you're going to be just like Jesus. But till then, he says, do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge standing at the door. And so what you had going on is like you had this group of Christians that were suffering. They, 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 they were uh, uh, victimized or they were uh, uh, oppressed. And so instead of like coming together and, and, and supporting each other and encouraging each other, they started to fight with one another. They started to, be, to judge one another. They started to be mad with one another, which is usually what you and I do when we find ourselves in those situations. When we experience hardship, trials, or suffering, we're, our immediate response is not to stop by, to stop and say, thank you, God, for this. We start to look at others. Why is he, why is he, is he has what he has? Why is he not? Do in dealing with the same pain that I'm dealing? Why did I have to be the one that was betrayed? Why did I have the one that got fired? Why, you know, we, go, we do all this stuff and instead of coming together, we start to judge one another. And the picture that he uses here is that, hey, don't be patient. Keep the goal in mind. Keep the end goal in mind. Know that the actual judge is coming back at any time. So instead of getting at each other, Prioritize one another. Prioritize harmony among others. Imagine what the church, start, let's start with the church. Imagine what the church will be today if all of us will prioritize harmony. Especially those that are hurting. Sometimes I think what I see in this, and I, and I know this is true because I do the same thing, and I know this is not, I'm not the only man who does this, but it is better to, like there are people in your life and in my life that we know that they're having a hard time, that they're having a hardship. And instead of embracing them, instead of like interacting with them, we'd rather not even navigate those waters because maybe we don't know what to say. Maybe we don't want to uh, like have that awkward conversation. Maybe we just think that they're better off on their own. But imagine what the church today would be like if every single man, as those that have been called by God to be the leadership of the church, as the individuals that are called to lead our families, if all of us led by example, by prioritizing harmony with one another. But this group of believers that were suffering, that's what they had to do. If the end goal is to be more like Christ, we will do that by taking care of one another. And James will allude to this later on. So I'm not going to get too ahead of it because I don't, that's something I'm guessing maybe Bruce is the one who's teaching on that. But he will say this too. 
as you're dealing with hurt, he will encourage him, hey, pray with one another so that you may be healed. That's how he ends this letter. This letter that I'm sure has been of a blessing to you as you, as you have been coming on Thursdays to, to, to hear it. But don't lose it. I feel like this is something right now in churches in general that is so ignore harmony with one another. There's so much division. I mean, we have so much division in our country as it is. For whatever, political or, 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 or morally or, or whatever it is, there's so much division. And yet how that division has started to creep in into the church. And now all of us feel entitled in a way or two to feel in a particular way. Imagine how we would be if we were to dismiss our entitlement, our rights, if you want to call it that. If we were just prioritize each other, especially those that are hurting, that are having a hard time. That's how we endure well through suffering. And number three, it says in verse uh, 10, as an example of suffering and patient brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who would remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Number, number four, or number three, we are to look at the example of those who endure many sufferings faithfully. How do we do endure, how do we endure hardships in difficult times? Our tendency is to ignore and override. But if we were to indulge in, into our suffering, our re immediate reaction is to look at others that don't have it as tough as we do. Those that have it better. And we compare ourselves to them. We wish at times that we were them. And what James is saying, instead of doing that, look at the example of those that have done it well. And look how God has worked in their life. They are the encouragement. They are the example that whatever it is that you're facing and that I may be facing, one, we're not alone in it, but two, that there's a way out of it. That there's a, there's a light in, in the end of the tunnel, tunnel if you want to say it that way. He uses two examples. He says the prophet. And you think of the prophet Elijah who was running from God or was running for his life. He found himself getting to the point where he was so depressed that he wanted to end his life. It was a moment of weakness, a moment of, uh, the, the, where he was not trusting God. And in that moment, in that moment of hardship, if you want to call it, you see how God ministered to him to the point where he was able to get up and do what God called him to do. And then, of course, he uses this example of Job, who is someone that for the Jewish culture is of treasure. And he uses the example of Job as somebody who endured pain and suffering. That if we wanted to, to say something, we could say that there's very few people ever that will experience as much hurt and pain and suffering as what Job went through. And yet you see in his story, if you read the book of Job, how he went from all that loss, all that pain, all that struggle, all that suffering, how God continued to work in his life to the point at the end where we truly get to see how compassionate and merciful God was. But we don't have to go that far. There are people in this room. Glenn, I don't want to put you on the spot. I'm sorry if I put you on the spot. But I look at Glenn. And 
he's dealt with pain and hurt. And I look at Glenn, and I'm challenged and encouraged because I may, feel, I may find myself in a position in my life where I think that I, what I have is tough. But I look at Glenn and what he has been through, and I see a, a gentleman that is always smiling, that greets you with a warm hug, that is always ready to serve. And I'm sure Glenn could have any reason to complain and to, and to just go out against God if he wanted because of what he's gone through. But that's not what I see of Glenn. I see a man, a man that, has, that exemplifies who Christ is. And I'm thankful for that. So think about in your life, in my life, people in our life that have gone through pain and suffering and hardship and, and look at, at them as the example opposed to those that are not going through that. But let's go beyond that. Look at Jesus. If the end goal is to be more like Jesus, then let's look at Jesus at how he dealt with suffering. And let's look how he endured the cross for your sins and my sins and how three days later he rose from the dead. And none of those moments he complained and fought. He said at one point that if I wanted, I could have sent a, a, a legion of angels and defended myself. And any time he could have come down that, that cross. But he didn't do any of that. He endured pain. And even in that moment, as he was enduring pain, he still pleaded with the Father and asked for forgiveness for the same people that were abusing him. And even as he was enduring through sufferings, He's welcoming another thief into the kingdom of God. If the end goal is to be like Jesus, then let's look at the example of Jesus. That's what James is saying. And then the last thing that he will say today is, is we'll find in verse 12. But above all, he's going to wrap it up. Above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by or by. Any other oath, let your yes be yes and your not be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. And so, it's kind of like if you're reading this about suffering, it kind of feels like this is like coming out of nowhere. Like why are we talking about yes, yes, and no, no? And yet, if you look at the context, you find that this in this culture, they were a habit of making oaths on anything or of like swearing on things. Not like swearing like a curse word, but swearing in the sense of like, in the name of this idol, in the name of this object, I promise you that this was going to happen. And so you find a lot of people that were dealing with sufferings that as a way of coping with that, is that they're starting to be themselves tricky, to be trickery, to be mischievous in the way that they behave, that they felt like it would, they, they were justified in their actions. And how many times we feel that way that we're justified because we're dealing with pain. We're justified to do one thing. Like, like maybe your marriage is, is going in a way that you don't want it to go. And you recognize that your marriage is not ideal. And, and, and maybe you and your wife get at each other. And so you feel now that you have worn the right. And now you, because your marriage is the way it is, you can go ahead and it's justifiable if you take, get at her by watching porn. That it's justifiable. That's so, why well, I'm going to get back at her so I can do that. Or maybe you are at work and your boss is just being brutal with you. He's just been getting on you, over on you, on you, on you. Pastor Bush, it's not like that. Definitely not like Pastor Bush. He just walked in. <laughs> He's, that's not who I'm referring to. So you're good, Pastor Bush. But you think about your boss and how they may, be, they may be abusing you. They may be getting at you. And you feel compelled that it's okay for you to not do your job the way that we're supposed to do. That it's okay for us to just 
do whatever we want because I'm going to get back to them. So when he is dealing with this, in essence, what he's telling them is this, is that we, as, as, as people that are dealing with hurt, as people that are leading, dealing with hardships, with struggles, we are to live in a way that is trustworthy. That how you behave and how you talk, even in those moments that may make no sense, that you're to do in a way where your yes is yes and your no is no, that you are trustworthy. And that's how we endure suffering well. That's how when you look at suffering, that's how you can suffer well, if you want to put it that way. You look at it with patience like a farmer waits for his fruits. You prioritize harmony with one another. You look at the example of those that have done it well, and you live in a way that is trustworthy. And so it doesn't so it does not matter what comes your way. It's not matter what challenges, what hardships you may have facing. If you do this, James is telling them that you're going to endure well suffering. Because at the end of the day, the, the purpose even of suffering, and even in those moments of suffering, the end goal is to be more like Jesus. And God can even use our darkest moments, our hardest times for that very purpose. And so it's not ignoring and overriding. Instead, Let's look at it and let's embrace it. So for a few minutes, I may have gone a little bit longer, but for a few minutes, just discuss these four questions. Question number one, why do we feel more comfortable ignoring and overriding our sufferings than we do with acknowledging it? Number two, why do we tend to lose sight of the end goal, which is to be more like Jesus? Number three, what are the challenges of living in light of imminent return of Jesus? Number four, why is it hard to live in a trustworthy way when dealing with suffering. Get as many questions, deal with as many questions as you can, no pressure. But I will say this, again, we don't know who's here is dealing with what. And our initial reaction is to ignore and to override. But there may be someone sitting right next to you that is dealing with something. So what I will encourage us all is that as you're doing that, as you're discussing, if something like that comes up, is that you will, be, you will take the time to pray for them together. You will see it next, next week, the beauty of praying for one another. Why not? Let's not wait for next week. Let's even do it tonight. If you hear someone in your group that is dealing with something, take the time and just pray for them. If there's something you can do, do that. All right. You can just go ahead. I hope that you, you may have had some good discussions at your table. Um, like I said, it's one of those topics that, I mean, even, even, as, even as a pastor, like talking about it, it's not, as easy for me as I would like it to be because you're talking about something that is dear to many of us at times and many of us even in the earth even to some in this room this idea of hardship pain suffering trials uh, so it's not something fun to talk about and yet it's something that is needed it's something that clearly uh, as you read the letter of James you see that James takes the time to both start the letter talking about trials and, and hardships as he does when he's finishing the letter. And, and the recognition that if we live in a world that is broken like it is, how uh, at some point you and I are going to be faced with those things. And so with the hope is that with, this, with what we read about James is that it will encourage us to change our perspective when it comes to trials, hardships, suffering that we will not look at them and immediately try to ignore them and to override, to, to not even acknowledge it. 
but instead to recognize, to see them as an opportunity or to see them as something that God can utilize to make us more like his son, which is the end goal. To recognize that Jesus is coming back anytime and that when he does, everything will be the way that it's meant to be. And that until then, that you and I are not alone in our struggles, in our pain, in our suffering, in our circumstances. That the same God that challenged the rich was also the same God that told them that those cries, those pain, those sufferings do not go into the empty ears. That the Lord of hosts, the omnipresent God, sees it all. Even you and me in those moments where we feel alone. If you're here tonight and that's how you find yourself, is that how you feel, is that how you, you think about your situation, that it's just you, know that you're not. That there are even people in this room that have dealt through pain and suffering well and that they are a great example for us to look. And that we have people here too that want to come alongside you and pray for you and encourage you. So don't not live here alone if that's where you find yourself. If you got to talk to somebody, pull somebody in your table, talk to me. Pastor Steve came in. You can talk to Pastor Steve. Just talk to somebody. And let's look at hurt, pain, and suffering as an opportunity to be more like Jesus. It's not easy, but it's possible. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, as much as we would like to get rid of any suffering, any hurt, any pain, any hardship that we face, Lord. We pray, Father, that you will change our perspective to it. That we will not try to ignore them or override it. But that instead, Lord, that as we find in those moments that we will suffer well because we see the end goal, which is to be more like you. So, Father, help us in doing that. Help us in having a good attitude. Help us in preserving harmony. Help us into looking at the example of those that have done it well. Help us in having patience. And Lord, help us in being in living in a way that is trustworthy. I pray, Father, that if there's anyone here in this room that is currently dealing with something that is heavy on their heart, if there's anybody here tonight, Lord, that is faced with a hardship or loss or pain or struggle, Lord, you, you know it, Lord. And so I pray that they, uh, even in this moment, Lord, that they will sense your presence. That we talk about feelings often, Lord, but even in this moment with feelings maybe running heavy, that they will recognize that you are there, that you love them, that they're not dealing with this on their own, but that the same God that calls the rich is the same God that hears the cry and the pain of those that find themselves in it. So I pray, Father, that you will minister to them even tonight. We praise you for who you are. We praise you that you're full of compassion and mercy. And that you give us way more than we deserve. Because you are a gracious God. We pray this, Lord, in your name. Amen.